Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. G'day, welcome to The Rest is History. The history of Australia is littered with marvels and wonders. From the sporting high points of the 1981 Ashes and the 2003 Rugby Union World Cup final, to high culture, the career of Paul Hogan, or the music of Midnight Oil. But Tom, if we were (laughs) picking one point where Australian history really started, could you do better than the statue in Hyde Park, Sydney, of Captain Cook that bears the inscription, Discovered This Territory, 1770? What do you think of that? Uh, I think you've just given the most pommy introduction to Australian history imaginable. <laughs> and, and if there are any Australian listeners left after that introduction, there won't be. they'll there won't be, be. Run, running for the outback. Um, yes, well, uh, we've we've had so we've we've, we've we do have quite a lot of Australian listeners and we've had quite a lot of Australian listeners saying, are we going to do something on the history of Australia? They surely would have known we'd start with an introduction like that. (laughs) I'm sure they did. I'm sure that's what they wanted. Um, And and I said, well, who should we get on? And the universal consensus of Australia was that we should get on our guest today, who is David Hunt, who has written three histories of Australia, all of them with the name, the word Gert in, as in Gert with, you know, a moat or whatever. So Gert, the unauthorised history of Australia, true Gert and Gert Nation. He's also a broadcaster who's made a film for History Channel called Aussie Inventions That Changed the World. And he's a podcaster, award-winning podcaster uh, of rum, rebels and rat bags, which I think, David, the, the logo of that is, is that Captain Cook? It is. It's 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 Captain Cook wearing a silly British hat, which <laughs> There's is no uh, such thing. There's no such thing, David. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> British, British hats are always sensible. <laughs> I'm very disappointed that you did not mention the T20 2021 victory the other day as, oh, as yeah. part of the great Australian sporting history. <laughs> I've no idea what you're talking about. Anyone, everyone knows that 2020 is a ludicrous format and the test uh, it's the ashes that matter. So, right. David. Yeah. Yes. Um, Captain Cook, great hero in Australia, but until recently, <laughs> when it's slightly changed, hasn't it? Well, look, when I went to school, and I'm, I'm going to date myself here, uh, I, I remember Dennis Lilly playing vaguely as a young fella, so I've just hit 50. When I went to school in the 1970s and 1980s, we were effectively taught as students that Captain Cook discovered Australia. Um, And that was the conventional wisdom and the school curricula had a very British view of Australian history. Um, Recently, uh, the Australian history curriculum has been far more complex and and far more nuanced. And there is an upwelling of of criticism about statues of our colonial figures. We have to import debates from other countries before we actually have them here. So we have to see Americans and Brits getting angry about statues before we do the same thing. But the statue of Captain Cook in in Hyde Park has discovered this territory 1770, uh, which is is regarded as an insult to the Indigenous people who discovered this territory uh, some 65,000 years ago, give or take a few millennia, and all of the various other people who landed on these fair shores pre-Cook, who wasn't even Captain Cook at the time, he was a lieutenant. The British perspective... Mm. 
I mean, we were always taught, if we were taught about Australia at all, or if it was a sort of, you know, a page about Australia in a kind of world history textbook, mm. it always was, you know, Captain there was a Cook Ladybird discovered. Book, wasn't there? there was a Ladybird book of Captain Cook. There was a Ladybird, but that was exactly so what I was going to say. So that's the measure of Captain fame Cook in, is in one of the sort history. of great canonical. Can discover Australia. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. And yeah. so Captain Cook is. You know, he, just give us a little portrait of him. Because he's, he's not, he's not, a, he's not kind of terrible guy, is he? Like a, a conquistador no, no, or look, something. He, I mean, he was, he's, he he's a kind of admirable figure. He's a kind of great navigator. Un, un, undisputedly a great navigator. I mean, when he was picked for the, the Endeavour expedition to Australia, he was actually a fairly lowly warrant officer who'd, who'd served over in the Seven Years' War, posted to Canada, uh, killed a few Frenchmen, which was regarded as good sport, um, <laughs> but was, um, noted for his cartography and also noted for writing a, a learned paper on uh, the sun and navigation. Because he was, he was basically self-taught, wasn't he? I mean, he was from very humble yeah. stock. He was kind of father was a farm labourer. and Yeah, he was a, he was a, a grocer's apprentice uh, and took to sailing fairly late in life, serving on the free love, a sort of bohemian coal-carrying vessel uh, that plied the channel. Uh and and finds himself over in Canada, uh, but look, undisputably a great navigator. But he was chosen for the Endeavour um, voyage because the primary purpose of it was to measure the the transit of Venus across the Sun in eighteen sixty nine. Uh, sorry, seventeen seventeen uh, sixty nine in Tahiti, and so because he was a uh, a good cartographer because he was uh, an experienced amateur astronomer. The Royal Society promotes him effectively, or the Admiralty promotes him from warrant officer to lieutenant and posts him off to uh, to the other side of the world to measure this astronomical um, phenomena, to help measure uh, longitude more effectively. They thought that if we can make this precise calculation of how long it takes Venus to track across the face of the sun, we'll be able to use that to improve our, our navigation techniques. And so from there, he then, he, get, he gets secret orders, doesn't he? And he kind of opens up his letters and it tells him to go and discover Australia. He gets, he gets secret orders that he is to sail home via uh, New Zealand, uh, which he, he circumnavigates and effectively, you know, improves on the, the charting of the Dutch. Uh, but also, people are interested in searching for Terra Australis. This is the the great mythical counterweight continent that was meant to, um, according to Greek philosophers, stop the the globe from tipping off its axis. Uh, so Aristotle comes up with the the brilliant idea once Pythagoras says, "Well, hey, the world's a globe." Aristotle says, "Well, we've got a lot of land up here in." Where we are, there must be some down south. And so for much of the sort of 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, there was a desire amongst some of the European powers to to find this, this great southern land. And certainly after exploring New Zealand, he, he decides that he will sail home via the eastern coast of New Holland, as Australia was known. Uh, so it was obvious that he didn't discover Australia because he says, I'm going to go there in my boat. <laughs> Uh, and in 1770, uh, and this is one of the great stories of Australian history, uh, the Cook's Landing Place at Botany Bay uh, honours him for landing there on the 28th of April 1770 
even though he doesn't arrive there until the following afternoon. Right. <laughs> and this and this this date has not been corrected on 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 the the official monument. 151 years. But David, in Britain, we find Australian days really confusing. I can never remember whether you're ahead or <laughs> so. That's obviously what it is. <laughs> we'll put it down to British dating era. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 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 is it right that no European has landed at Botany Bay? At least is that right? I mean, he's the oh, first look, that's, European that, to land yeah, there. There's 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 no evidence of any European exploration of the east coast of Australia before 1770. The French. Uh, ran into the Great Barrier Reef uh, a few years earlier and and turned tail. Uh, it's been often taught in in the the Australian school history curricula that the Portuguese were bobbing off um, the coast of eastern Australia in the 1520s and and left behind a a vast mahogany ship that is buried in the dunes near near the sleepy town of Warrnambool. Um, but that that theory has largely been discredited, and there's no real. They, proof. Have they found the ship? Well, what, what, what's the when, ship? Uh, the, the, there is believed to be some sort of vessel there in the dunes. Um, uh, at one stage, uh, when the sand shifted, something that looked rather like a barge, <laughs> rather than a rather than a, a 16th, uh, 16th century Portuguese or fifteenth century sixteenth century Portuguese caravel uh, made of mahogany. Um, when you look at the the stories that appeared in the newspapers, the guy who's often credited with discovering it was a, was an Irishman, uh, known for their tall tales in Australia. Um, the time where he claims to have actually discovered it, he appears to have been sitting in a peat hut somewhere in Ireland. So <laughs> right. uh, you, you, you automatically sort of discredit uh, the accuracy of the story. There were two two bits, r- reported bits of the mahogany ship were collected by a bloke called uh, Archibald, uh, who was the editor of a leading Australian magazine, donated to the to the um, Australian National Library, and they've been um, later tested and found to be made of uh, eucalyptus, a, a tree that was in a <laughs> fairly short supply in uh, Portugal in the 1500s. Yeah. Oh, so let's, let's sort of pull back a bit then. Mm. So um, Cook is supposed to have arrived at this date in Botany Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cook, there's a statue of Cook, but obviously mm-hmm. he's not the first human being to have discovered Australia. So right. how long have human beings been in Australia before Captain Cook? Well, we've actually, we've got, we've got a massive question here from Rachel Everett Gouache. I hope I've pronounced that right. How did people get there? When did they get there? How long yep. did it take to occupy such a vast area? So th- th- there are three massive questions. The great thing about history is, of course, it's contestable. Uh, prehistory, for want of a better term, is even more contestable. Uh, when I was a kid, we were taught that uh, Aboriginal people had been on the continent for about 10,000 years. The date that is commonly accepted now is is around 60 to 65,000 years. Um, some people push that back to 120,000 years, but there's a broad consensus of 65,000 uh, give or give or take a couple of millennia. So this is this is Homo sapiens coming out of Africa, crossing Asia, going down yeah. across the islands. Of course, Aboriginal people, some Aboriginal people, maintain that they were created here and they've always uh, been here. But the the scientific evidence would would support the out of Africa uh, thesis uh, that they effectively island hopped um, from. Uh, uh, Sunda as sort of Southeast Asia was known to Sahul, the, the continental landmass of Sahul, which 
which took in Australia and New Guinea. Sea levels were between 70 and 140 40 metres lower than they are now. Is that because so, all the, the water's locked up in ice? Is, is this during the ice ages? Yeah, yeah, during, during one of the ice ages. Uh, so... Um, you could you could sort of walk around uh, New Guinea, Australia, Tasmania were part of one landmass. Um, they were obviously a seafaring people uh, because to get across uh, the Sunda Strait and to get across the Wallace Line that separates Bali and Lombok, it's a deep ocean trench that the big scary animals of Asia had never been able to get across. So no tigers in Lombok. Uh, and so when the first Australians would have crossed that line, they would have suddenly found this sort of land where there were no large prey animals intent on eating them, but there were lots of animals that had never seen humans before that basically sat there and you could club them over their head and, and, and have a jolly good meal. So that was probably the first experience um, of Australia around about 65,000 years ago. But the, but in Australia, then mm. I mean, the, the, there are extraordinary animals, and the, the, so so there is there is, there's the the uh, the marsupial lion. Yes, yes, yes. Supposedly, kind of lurks in trees, and then carnifex. Yes, and I, yes. I went to Adelaide and saw a skeleton of it in the museum there, uh, and it, yeah. it looked very menacing. And you wouldn't want to have it drop out on top of you from a tree. No, they they, they got um, up to about one hundred and thirty kilos. They they're believed to be ambush predators. Uh, their, their muscular suggests that they perhaps weren't great runners, but, you know, they, they're effectively the size of a, a panther or a leopard uh, that would, would leap out and take a, take a nibble of you. Dennis Lilly-esque predator to have something <laughs> on you. If you We've um, had lots of questions about this, haven't we? So the, yeah. the, Can, the Kanzuk kid and others have asked about, I mean, all kinds of things, land crocodiles, giant koalas, ah, yes. giant kangaroos. Are these things yes. real? Do they really exist? Yeah, so look... Um, Megafauna, as they're known, which is Latin for really big animal. Um, <laughs> uh, we, uh, yeah, look, Australia had its own megafauna. The, the land crocodile, the Quincana, is one of my favourites. It grows up to maybe seven metres in length. Um, it's got, its legs are underneath it for walking on land rather than right. at its sides for, for paddling. Um, and fossils have been found in areas near no known watercourses. So, you know, you British tourists are, are afraid of all sorts of animals in Australia, particularly those in our waterways. Yeah, this was actually one that you could be scared of on land as well. <laughs> I didn't like the way you said you began that sentence with such contempt, <laughs> you British tourists. <laughs> well, it's always the first question we're asked is, is, is about our animals. But uh, giant koalas, uh, look, there was a koala only about a third larger than our current koala. Uh, we in Australia have legends of the drop bear, a, uh, a, 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 basically designed to, to frighten tourists of giant koalas that drop from the trees and, and savage <laughs> right. you. No, no evidence of the drop bear. Uh, my favourite, uh, there was, of course, the diprotodon, which was the largest. Yes, sort of the a giant wombat. Giant wombat. Well, yeah, right? uh, it's, it's, it's sort of a rhinoceros-sized wombat-like creature. And one of the things about Australia is that its land is incredibly arid, limited nutrients in, in, in plants, and lots of the large marsupials here, pouched animals, um, uh, to conserve energy, th their brain pan or their brain devolved. So you have So something you're saying they're thick? 
<laughs> they, they were remarkably thick. The, the koala today, um, its brain has shriveled so that it effectively gets concussion every time it turns its head oh, that's uh, because it's trying to save, save energy. Yeah. Uh, but it, look, it's too whacked out on gum leaves to really notice. But the diprotodon, again, large skull, large sinuses, small brain. So, so old koalas would be would be gutted by the degeneracy of their descendants. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's right. The, the, <laughs> we, we Australians have obviously evolved smaller brains in the last two hundred years. Just on Diprotodon, yeah. just on Diprotodon, yep. which is this yep. enormous wombat. Yeah, uh, w- wombats famously their their poos are square. A square. Do, yeah. did, did did Diprotodon do kind of like? Do we know? Did he do enormous square shaped turds? There, there is actually there is actually a field of study from which you can date when the megafauna may have died out, which is looking at the fungus that, that could be found in the poos of herbivorous animals in Australia. <laughs> uh, uh, there's no suggestion that the diprotodon had a, had a square asshole. Oh, that's a shame. Look, I mean, my favourite example of the megafauna um, is, is known by um, archaeologists and, and naturalists affectionately as the demon duck of doom. Uh, wow. Bullocus planei, uh, which is basically a quarter ton, eight foot tall carnivorous kick ass duck. Uh, so <laughs> it probably had, had, had died out before, before the first um, Australian humans appeared. Can I just ask specifically about humans arriving and the megafauna? Yeah. The megafauna is no longer around. Humans have arrived. Is there a link? Mm. Do, it, it, basically, are humans killing out, wiping out all these giant animals? And, and it's interesting. This is one of the sort of politically uh, contested bits I can, I can bits guess of it is, would be. Because, because Australian, it's, Australian history. Because uh, the idea is that, that Aboriginal Australians have cared for the land in a way that right. Europeans haven't. So rather, than, would, rather than eaten all the big animals and burnt yes, many yeah. of the forests. Yeah. yeah. Look, the the jury remains out. There's no doubt that some of the megafauna coexisted with humans for a period of time. The the length of time is is contested. There appears to have been a significant megafaunal die off about forty to forty four thousand years ago. Um, uh, Tim Flannery, who who wrote a wonderful book called The Future Eaters, has the Blitzkrieg theory of megafaunal extinction, which is essentially when humans arrived in Australia, there were all these big animals with small brains that sat there and let you clap them on me. the head yeah. and and said, "Eat me." And 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 so you know, people had really big barbecues for a very long time, and <laughs> uh, and and once the megafauna died out, there was a move to the hunting of smaller animals. And the firing of, of of forests to flush them out on, on onto grasslands, um, and there's a suggestion, uh, according to that theory, that Aboriginal people fundamentally changed the Australian landscape to to hunt for smaller food prey. The alternative theory is that climate change played a significant impact. Um, the the growing aridification of the continent as the result of the the, the ice age. Is, is, is there a sense in which this argument is driven by politics or would that be an oh, overly look, reductive way of, of framing it? Oh, no, look, it, 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 it's a debate that moves backwards and forwards. Um, and look, there were probably pockets of m- megafauna that survived until relatively recent times. There's the, the Bradshaw paintings or the Guion Guion paintings in Arnhem Land in the north of, of Australia, which are probably 
dated about 17,500 years ago. There's a couple of them that feature what appears to be a marsupial lion. Yeah, um, it kind of looks like Tigger, doesn't it, from Winnie the Pooh? It does, <laughs> or, or from the, yeah, the tiger from Calvin and Hobbes. Yes, yes, yes that's right. Uh, yes. A, 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 a striped dog-like creature that could be a, a thylacine, um, the Tasmanian tiger, which the last ones died out in Australia in the 1930s down in Tasmania. Or did they? Or did they? Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, there, there's a whole episode in that. Yeah, we must go down uh, that one. Let's yeah. go back to the. Let's go back to the the Aborigines. So yeah. you're talking. You the, all the theories about um, mm. uh, what they did. I mean, those obviously rest on some sense of what their culture might have been. So when yeah. we're talking about the first Australians, let's say yeah. let's say fifty thousand, forty thousand years ago, yeah. are we basing that on? Um, specific archaeological evidence or yep. are people extrapolating back from what they know of aboriginal society in a, the 18th a, a, century or whenever a number of uh, different factors i mean radiocarbon dating sort of you can get 40,000 50,000 years back before it, it stops being effective a um, mungo man is the sort of oldest uh um body of an aboriginal person that dates to about 40,000 bp uh, it's also the earliest uh, example in the world uh, that's known of, of ritual burial, uh, where the body is 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 buried with ochre uh, paint uh, sprinkled sprinkled upon it. Right. Um, you've got um, earlier dating of stone um, uh, implements uh, through sort of luminescent um, uh, technology, which can calculate how old something is by when it was sort of heated in a fire, uh, right. as some. Um, early stone tools were, and you've got some genetic dating which suggests somewhere between 60 and 75,000 years ago um, as a timeline that sort of genetically fits. But beyond those things, can we say anything more sort of, I mean, obviously we know that there were people there, but can mm. we say anything about the kind of society that they had or their religion or their family structures or yeah. any of those kinds well, of things? Well, we, we, we certainly know um, in, in, in recent millennia what those things were, were like. I mean, you have over 250 languages, so you have a period of time for dispersal. You have most of Australia with one one language group with different languages within that group and more completely different languages in the north, which may coincide with an infusion of um, Indian uh, settlement right. uh, several thousand years ago. Um, and so, David, is, is, it, is it thought that um, the original wave of, of, of arrival of humans, say, mm. 60,000 years ago, yeah. is, is, is that basically the group from which all the Aboriginal peoples in Australia descend, or are there waves of people coming? What's the thinking Look, on yeah, that? Yeah, there's the single wave theory and the multi wave theory. And the single wave theory says that, that with the genetic diversity that you have in Australia, you would have had to have had about between 1,000 and 3,000 people come across about 65,000 years ago to to have the the genetic diversity that you you have with the first Australians at the time of first contact. Um, there are we know that the Lapita people, the sort of proto-Polynesian seafarers, probably stopped off and gave us the dingo sort of 4,000 years ago. Uh, there are suggestions of some Indian genetic admixture in the north of Australia again around that 5,000-year mark. So 
the multi-wave theory um, uh, is that there were, if you can have one one group of people coming over, why can't you have two, three, four, yeah. five, or more? Um, that that is, there is some political uh, and cultural uh, arguments associated with that, which suggests that people who are Aboriginal today were perhaps invaded by other people uh, rather than having been there all the time and the first the first owners. So it's contested. So there's a question here from the Burning Archive. It is sometimes mm. said these days, uh, Aboriginal culture is the oldest continuous culture in the world. Mm. Is this true? How could we know? How, how could we know is a very good question. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what you can say is that some of the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories suggest a continual culture and oral tradition that is that is many, many millennia old. There are um, there are stories of creatures that sound like megafauna in some of the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories. There is are that suggestions. The yeah, the, the the bunyip, which is uh, meant to be a, a grumpy creature that inhabits waterholes that we Australians call billabongs, um, uh, um, may, may, may trace its origins to the diprotodons that used to sort of wade in, in, in sort of marshland. But there are also a, a, a range of stories um, uh of, of 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 very large animals that gathered and 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 gathered in the trees, perhaps which is where the giant koala theory theory comes from, um, uh, that may trace back to um, a megafaunal uh, type creature. But also, there are particular stories in very arid parts of Australia of a landscape that was radically different, much more fertile, mm. um, and stories that that really seem to be tracing. Um, back for people who've been in the same place for a while to quite a different climate. Before we go, we have to have a break in a, in a minute or two, but just before we do that, mm. um, the Dreamtime stories, can you mm. tell us a little bit about what they are and how how we know about them and how we know that they are kind of authentic or continuous rather than, you know, yeah. so much folklore tends to be invented or, or sort of elaborated upon and, of course, changes over time. So the yeah. Dreamtime stories, tell us a little bit more about them. Well, I mean, you have the Aboriginal people had an oral tradition. They didn't have writing. So you have uh, a, a, an oral system of communication through the generations. Uh, you have song lines, which are effectively uh, cultural songs that are passed on through the generations, describing the landscape in, in some detail and particular geographical features um, that form a form of mnemonic device to, to navigate around your bit of the continent. Um, but the idea of the dream time, Aboriginal history is very different from a Western history where we focus on progress. Aboriginal cultures focused on continuity and stability. Um, and the dream time stories were, if you like, a way of codifying rules and laws. Um, they had supernatural elements. Um, we know that modern Aboriginal people had sort of animist uh, religious spiritual beliefs that their ancestors inhabited rocks and trees of significance. Um, and so you have this complex series of laws, cultural traditions, uh, stories about who you can marry and who you can't marry. Um, um, and it was 
beautifully summed up by an Australian anthropologist, Bill Stanner, who described the sort of dream time as timeless, described it as, as every when. Uh, so it's this fusing of spirituality with the past, present and the future into sort of a, a series of stories as to how life is to be lived and life is to be regulated. And, and when were they um, uh, written down by, by non Aboriginals. So, were they recorded in the nineteenth century, or what's the? How does that work? Uh, and look, this is one of the one of the tricky bits. Um, often, um, white explorers weren't terribly interested in sitting down and listening to Aboriginal stories. They were far more interested in chasing Aboriginal people off off the land they were trying to put their sheep on. Um, so, certainly, there are there are. Uh, cr- ab- Particularly Aboriginal creation myths, they were collected because um, missionaries who were interested in spreading the word of God were trying to tap into what what do you have there in terms of creation mythology. So you have many Aboriginal cultures have got a giant snake-like uh, creator figure that is associated with water that Westerners named the Rainbow Serpent that appears throughout Australia. Down in Tasmania, the Tasmanian Aboriginal people of Bruni Island had a creator named Lala, who appears to have been a giant ant. Um, so there was some recording of, of these stories, but the best records you would have would be with Aboriginal people who who wrote those stories down themselves in the late 19th and the early 20th century and who continue to tell those stories orally. And just one last question before we go to a break. Mm. Do, you, do, do you think, did, did Aboriginal peoples in Australia have a sense of themselves as, as, as belonging to this kind of the same group of people? Or do they have no sense of that at all? Is that, is that a kind of a, a, a colonial no. imposition? So that's it. Look, the, 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 in the entire notion of Aboriginality is a colonial construct. I mean, Australia is, you know, the size of Western Europe plus yeah. some. It's like saying, you know, do the Poles and the Cornish uh, regard each other as, as similar. Yeah. Y- you have over 250 language groups. Within those language groups, you have uh, up to 50 clans, as low as, you know, just a handful of clans. Um, so you, these people did not see each other as part of the same people. That being said, there was trade and communication across the continent. You have shells from... Uh, northern Queensland appearing in Western Australia, where they were passed on as as trade goods. So you have communication and trade occurring over large distances, but there was certainly not the belief we are all Aboriginal people. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we should go for a break now, uh, and when we come back, perhaps we could look at the process by which uh, Europeans and perhaps Chinese. Oh, oh, good. I like that <laughs> bit. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about Australia, and in particular, we've been talking about Australia before the arrival of the first Europeans, or indeed the first British. So, David, Mm. the first outsiders, as in non-Aboriginal peoples, to Mm. arrive in Australia. Now, in Britain, we were always brought up to think that this is Captain Cook, followed by boatloads of convicts. Mm. But... We've got a question from, for example, Nova Sluf, one of our listeners, mm. who uh, asks about contact between Indonesians and Malayans, or the people yeah. who lived in what are now Indonesia and Malaya. Um, yeah. So are they arriving in Australia? And if so, hmm. why don't they settle it and colonize it? So there's there's evidence of the Makassans from the island of Sulawesi, which is modern-day Indonesia, uh, fishermen who... The precise date is uncertain. It's certainly the early 1600s, probably in the 1500s, and they were coming to the northern shores of Australia to fish for trepang, sea cucumber, which was prized in China as an aphrodisiac. So that content was uh, that contact was uh, Australia was effectively an uh, a, a, an Asian sex shop uh, as <laughs> as so people are coming here to to. Uh, to, to get this very ugly creature. It's basically a black sausage that sits in shallow, shallow coastal waters and aspires to nothing more than not ending up in a Beijing sex shop. And oh. the, the Macassans... <laughs> what a life. <laughs> that's it. Uh, the Macassans came here and they form um, close cultural relations with the, the Yongul people in in, in Arnhem Land and actually effectively buy their labour um, for this industry. You have probably about a 1,000 Macassans coming here each season. They stay for months. They build these sort of demountable factories where they process the trepang. It's, it's uh, the sea cucumber. It's, it's boiled. Uh, it's dried. It's buried in the sand for a few weeks. It's dug up. It's boiled. Um, it's packaged and it's 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 shipped off, and they traded um, uh, glass, cloth, um, metal implements, um, alcohol, um, and there was language exchange as well. So when the first Europeans 
came to this part of Australia, when they they appeared, the Aboriginal, the Yongle knew of them, and they called them Ah Belanda, uh, which was Hollander uh, uh, that they'd picked up from the the Macassan people. So they had an idea that there were Europeans out there. But yeah, that's that's the other than the sort of Lapita proto Polynesians who 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 arrived about 4,000 years ago and, and dropped off the dingo, um, they are the first really established contacts. Why don't people come in greater numbers? Why don't, given the, the, yeah. the population in Southeast Asia and so on, and given mm. that they are moving around in boats, they're seafaring peoples, yep. why don't more people come to Australia? So, look, there is some Lapita DNA in, in, in some of the northern Torres Strait Islands and on the southern coast of, of New Guinea. Um, predominantly Melanesian, but some some uh, Polynesian influence as well. Um, I think the answer is nobody really knows. Um, there may have been, if you're coming in 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 just a handful of boats and you encounter stiff resistance from some people who don't want you to stop there, as occurred in the Andaman Islands, um, you know for. For centuries, um, if if you run into some territorial people who drive you off, maybe you don't want to stay. But there certainly was trade with the dingo, and kangaroo fleas then appear to have got on dingoes that the lapita then took to Southeast Asia. So you get you get kangaroo fleas in some nations. So dogs. Australia is exporting sex aphrodisiacs and fleas, and fleas. fleas. pretty much yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so, so well, you're you really have, selling it. So, so David, no, yeah. you, David, you mentioned you mentioned China. Yeah. Uh, now, there is a theory, is there not, that mm. the Chinese discovered Australia? What, what do you make of that? If you're an Australian, it's a disturbing theory because in 2003, Premier Hu Jintao became, I think, just the second non-Australian to address both houses of parliament and basically said, look, we were here in the 1420s engaging in harmonious relations with the locals. Effectively, we were here first. And that sprang from Gavin Menzies' 1421 the year China discovered the world, which basically said these vast treasure fleets had travelled all over the world as far south as Antarctica to the Americas, and and two two uh, two parts of that fleet um, up the east coast and west coast of Australia in the fort in 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 the fourteen twenties, and the idea is that there are these eunuch um, admiral, admirals. I, I, I David, tell so, this story. fans will be so pleased that you've got in some genital mutilation into this. Well, I, I do have a section of my first book, Gert, called Chinese Sailors with No Junk. Um, <laughs> oh and, 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 and the <laughs> the um, the suggestion has been roundly ridiculed. Uh, Menzies looks at Australian evidence from a chap called Rex Gilroy, who he cites as being some eminent Australian historian. Uh, Rex actually wrote for uh, a series of Australian magazines in the 1980s, uh, stories like Why Yowie is a Fair Dinkum, the Yowie being the Australian equivalent of the Bigfoot, our own Nessie, uh, <laughs> about Stonehenge is here, uh, um, and is the sort of guy who wrote stories about UFOs in magazines with topless women on the cover. This is presented by Menzies as a reliable... Yeah. Primary source. Um, Sam Holland. 
<laughs> and 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 it's been labelled as, as 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 junk history in 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 various Australian exposés of the reliability of those. Australian so the Chinese, Chinese didn't companies. didn't come to Australia. Basically, there's no there's no there's no compelling evidence that the Chinese did come. Uh, they would have certainly known once the the, the Macassans started delivering them. Uh, uh, dried trepang uh, of the existence of the landmass to the south, but there's no evidence that they themselves came here, no. Because they weren't particularly interested in anything that wasn't China. Well, uh, look, the the idea is that there is some evidence of these treasure fleets in the 1420s. Yeah, they went to Africa, didn't they, and brought back they, giraffes. They, yeah, and, and, and um, India, but then there was a policy of uh, from the 1430s on of effectively isolation and closing themselves off from the world. So... Uh, yeah, no, it's it's highly speculative at best. And David, is 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 this? I'm just dredging this up from my memory, so I may have got this mm. wrong. Wasn't there quite recently some Arab coins found on a, a a beach that had come from Africa or something? Am I look? There are always yeah. Um, look, there've been some sort of shell-like coins. Um, there are always bits of old coins and bits of old cannon found on Australian beaches. Um, Coins, Australia um, or New South Wales, when it was formed, was was famous for having no no currency. A deliberate decision to have no currency, where rum becomes the liquid currency of the choice. But what you have is you have sailors bringing coins from all over the world that may be, you know, pieces of eight. They may be quite old. They may have been bought out at some much later time. So, look before before sixteen. 106. There's no evidence of any sort of European contact. No, no compelling evidence of European contact. And then what happens in 1606? Why is that such a key date? Look, there are two things uh, that happened. Uh, the first is that the Dutch East Indies uh, Dutch East Indies Company is formed in 1602, and they've muscled the Portuguese out of the Spice Islands, bits of Indonesia to to Australia's north. Um, and so they are sending ships over to look for spice, uh, for send spices back to to the Netherlands and around the world. And uh, William Jansoon, the captain of the Dufkin, was sent south from the Spice Islands to look at whether there were new economic opportunities um, for trade, for for collecting spice or other valuable trade goods. And he runs into the Cape York Peninsula in in uh, what is now northern Queensland and charts about 300 kilometres of it. Um, he calls it Papua, thinks it's part of New Guinea. He names part of New Guinea, New Zealand, and sort of sails off in a state of geographical confusion. Um, <laughs> but but you, do have, you do have that Dutch contact in So 16- when does Tasman turn up? When, cause- Tasman, Tasman turns up uh, in 1640. Two, uh, he claims Van Diemen's land. He's a suck-up. He names it after his boss, Anthony Van Diemen, who's higher up in the in the Dutch East Indies Company. He goes and paddles around New Zealand and names New Zealand New Zealand, comes back and names the Australian landmass New Holland. Um, That's a great name. Which, it's a great yeah, shame that it changed. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 Dutch, um, the Dutch previously knew Australia as Beach. Before they called it New Holland, so, Beach. <laughs> that's wonderful. Full, full of sand. Yeah. yeah. And when did they discover the quokka? The quokka. Uh, well, the, the quokka lives on 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 Rotnest uh, Island and would have been discovered fairly 
Oh, just off, just off the coast of Perth. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know the quokka, it is not megafauna. It is a small, cuddly, smiley kangaroo, uh, much loved by tourists yeah, and I've much loved them. by Adorable. starving Dutch sailors who stopped off at the <laughs> island and ate it. So why don't the Dutch... So, okay, why isn't Australia Dutch? Okay, so, I mean, and also, Dominic, we've got a yeah. question here from Eric Mercer. Yeah. References to New Holland aside... Was there any yeah. real possibility of the Dutch or indeed the French colonising Australia? Or was it always going to be England driven by its loss of the American colonies? Well, that's the so, question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. why, why on earth don't people, if they've got there first, or indeed the Portuguese, you yeah. know, they're in place. Why on earth is, are they not all speaking, you know, well, Dutch or Portuguese in Australia? Well, well, look, I mean, as I say, the Portuguese theory of, of the sort of there in the 1520s on the East Coast is heavily contested. Those who insist that it is true insisted as a result of the Treaty of Torcedia, I think in 1494, where Spain and Portugal divide the world between themselves and the Pope says, you have this bit, you have that bit, that the Portuguese were in the wrong place and so were shy about writing their discovery down, or that all the records burnt in a fire in a library in Lisbon. No evidence of this. The Spanish would have colonised Australia, and 1606 is an important year because uh, Louis... Vasca, uh, Luis Vaz de Torres sails through the Torres Strait, uh, the, the body of water that separates Australia from New Guinea, and, and actually saw most probably the northernmost tip of Australia thinking it was another island in this sort of sea of treacherous shoals that he w- desperately wanted to get out of. He didn't stop, but if he had, the Spanish would have taken an interest because they were into colonising, they were interested in spreading Christianity, they were interested in finding terror... Australis incognita, um, and it's lucky uh, for for the Brits that they kept on sailing. The yeah. Dutch were a mercantile people, and if there was nothing, uh, the East Indies East Indies Company was a, a mercantile company. Uh, it was sort of a projection of Dutch power, but it operated independently of the government. And it was only interested in setting up trading posts where there was something to buy or sell. And they decided that the bits of Australia that they stopped off at had lots of sand, <laughs> um, which, which there wasn't a, a great market for. They did stop off. Uh, they hit the West Australian coast in 1616, a chap called Dirk Hartog, who nails a pewter plate to a post, which basically says Dirk Hartog was here. Um, which was the Dutch way of sort of saying we're here. The French, when they came, left bottles lying around bits of the Australian coast with messages in them, you know. I, uh, Marion de Frasne, was here. Um, the French come to and sail up the coast of Western Australia in 1687, a bloke called Abraham Duquesne-Guiton, um, sights the, the Swan River, but keeps on, on sailing um, for the Spice Islands to the north. The French weren't terribly interested in colonisation at the time. They were interested in trade and sort of scientific discovery. Um, so the Spanish would have taken a more active interest if they'd stopped off. French and Dutch, not so much. And even the Brits, when Cook arrives in 1770, Joseph Banks, um, you know, the scientific go-to Guy aboard the Endeavour. So he's the botanist who gives the name Botanist. He's, he's, he's the botanist yeah. who is the inspiration for Mr. Spock in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> he, he, and James Cook was the inspiration for James Kirk. Uh, Star Trek was modelled on the Endeavour voyage. Uh, but 
uh, Banks says the, the country reminded him of the, the back of a lean cow and he's sort of scathing of, of its suitability for settlement. Until 1878, when he has a change of heart, uh, the American War of Independence, Britain's desperately looking for somewhere new to dump its convicts, and Banks says, well, this place wasn't so bad. So, but, but you still have a period of 10 years where the, where the Brits look at um, the idea of convict settlements in, in um, East Africa, um, uh, the, the West Indies. They again try to send some uh, convicts to, to the Americas, um, the Mosquito Coast. New South Wales was very much an afterthought and it appealed to the Brits, not so much because of anything that, that, that Cook or Banks said, but it was so geographically isolated, there was no, no other Western settlement about. And when you sent your convicts to America, they kept on popping on boats and coming home. <laughs> um, the idea was that if you dumped convicts in, in, in Botany Bay, which They'd rapidly never moved back. to Sydney, they wouldn't be able to get back. And so that, yeah. that ended up being... Except, except Magwitch. Magwitch yeah. does except come Magwitch. back. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, the, the irony is that the first convicts actually escaped within a couple of weeks aboard oh, really? French vessels. Peter Paris, <laughs> a French waiter, hitched a, hitched a ride off. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, from so what, they La went Perouse. off to France, did they? Well, they... <laughs> they um, the, the La Perouse um, expedition pops up in Botany Bay just a few days after Philip arrives in 1788, and there's this, geez, the French are here, and there's lots of them. They camp in Botany Bay for a while, and two of the convicts, or lots of the convicts, run from Sydney to Botany Bay and <laughs> hold up their little hitchhiking sides, please take us home. Two of them escape, and um, the La Perouse expedition uh, probably founded off the Solomon Islands, and, and most of them were... Were, 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 were eaten. But eaten? Yes, the, the, the Solomon Islanders liked French food. So, <laughs> oh, my uh, God. <laughs> and so, David, Australia begins. Indeed. So um, hopefully we could, uh, we could continue the story. We should definitely continue another, the story. We another, should definitely do a part um, two. Yeah, so we, 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 if you were willing to come back, that would be... That would be fantastic. Do uh, uh, no, look, I'd, I'd I'd love to talk with you about the founding of the wonderful convict colony of New South Wales. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's if, we can go, story. if we can take the story then from that to Ian Botham, then everybody will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that we should um, wait until uh, this uh, next Ashes series is over before indulging in too much sport related banter because <laughs> I'm slightly nervous because yeah, we remember what happened when. When the last Captain Cook, Alistair Cook, came to ah, Australia, yes. and it, it wasn't, it was, well, it was, they basically got eaten. Um, <laughs> no, anyway. I, I, I do, I do um, have several cricket stories in, 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 in my books. That's um, part of the rich, rich tapestry of, of <laughs> yeah. British Australian history. I exactly. can't wait. I can't wait. David, thanks so much for that. That was absolutely fabulous. Um, and hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much, Tom. Thanks, Dominic. All right. Thank you, David. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Good day. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's 
restishistorypod.com. 